Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, the Course Health series. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So we've reached the end of the Course Health series, and in this final episode, I'm speaking with Rani Loanyam, Matthew Lowe and Christine Price, who share their reflections on the series from the perspectives of philosopher, clinician and patient, respectively. We also discuss some of the practical recommendations which appear in the final section of the book and that are needed in order to resituate person-centred healthcare within a new paradigm. So it's been a real privilege for me to speak to each and every author of this groundbreaking resource. And like so many of you, I've learned so much personally from each of the conversations. What has become clear to me during the series is that not only does Course Health offer a novel framework for understanding causation, but it also moves us to take a critical look at all of our assumptions around so many areas of healthcare practice, whether it be the nature of evidence, the role of clinical judgment, how patients and clinicians might relate and interact with each other, as well as broader issues of public health policy. So in many ways, for me, Cause Health offers a bold, formal theory of genuine person-centred care, which has explanatory power that reaches far, wide and deep into our healthcare practice, policy and our patients' lives. So I bring you Rani, Matthew and Christine. Matt, Rani and Christine, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ollie. Brilliant. Thank you. So this is a somewhat impromptu episode where it just felt wrong just to terminate on Anna Louise's brilliant episode, which was out two days ago. And it was, it seems right to both reflect on the, the fantastic 15 previous episodes, but also talk a bit more about the recommendations in the final chapter, I don't know if it's called a chapter, the conclusion section of the book, where you pull these ideas together with some recommendations for clinical practice and research and patient care, all that kind of stuff. So I'll start just by reflecting some of the the feedback that I've had directly to me in my inbox, but also on social media. And, uh, you know, we're talking about philosophical bias. I'm hugely biased. The feedback has been astounding and, and, and I suppose there's lots of things I can say about the feedback. One key theme which has come through is that it's been, I mean, transformational is a strong word, isn't it? But it had, for some clinicians, it's had a real impact. You know, it's, had, it's struck a, a, a chord and I think for many clinicians it seems to have shed light on areas of practice which they were just either confused about or there were some tensions about, or there were some contradictions about. And for many, it's just really, it's been enlightening for them. And, and some, some really powerful, powerful comments. And I've sent, and I've shared some with you and Matt, and maybe not with you, Christine, but I'm happy to. So I want to say it's all been positive, which sounds awful. And that's not the, the way to do these things. And as critically minded individuals, we should be finding flaws in our, in the series of podcasts, but it really has resonated with so many. And much more than I thought it would have done when we came up with the idea, Rani. Yeah, I, I'm just so happy with uh, the way it turned out. And uh, I can't thank you enough for the job that you've done. What, I, what we really wanted with the book was to give people uh, like conceptual tools to reflect critically upon their own practice and the conditions for their own practice and what happens in the clinic. And I think there are so many frustrated clinicians out there and i'm not sure if we made them less frustrated <laughs> with this but but i really think that the podcast has helped explain some of these more theoretical and abstract ideas in a more concrete way and i was surprised by how long the episodes were because i thought okay so we do a little 10 minute introduction or a teaser so people will read the book but actually 
I was surprised to hear that people enjoyed listening to the podcast episodes, even if they were over an hour. And some people said that they thought it was really useful as a supplement to the book. So I think in that way, it's gone really perfect. Yeah, I think that long form conversation, I mean, given the the intricacies and the complexities of the arguments and the text and the stories, for me to do it justice, to, you know, to, summarizing it just it would have read just like another i don't know summary of person-centered care or something which people would have glanced over but i think what having the authors go into into detail about not so much their chapter but about their position i think was was for me as a listener and i suppose podcaster and clinician it was so powerful to get i mean you don't really get those stories. Where, where, where are those stories told? Not really. They're not, they're not often shared like that. Much of the podcasting world is around, you know, reasonably clear-cut MSK healthcare-related stuff. This was to get you know, deep underneath some of these these thoughts and behaviours and experience of clinicians. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right, Ollie. I think for me, I think the podcast made the book accessible in ways that perhaps wouldn't have been as accessible had you just just read the book. And so things like exploring the types of thinking that underpins the theories of what we do in practice or the assumptions that we have in practice, I think that's really, really important. And I think I think that might have resonated with a lot of clinicians is is the ways of our the ways that we see the the world are often shaped through our educational or cultural practices, which go unchallenged. And and that's not to suggest that the Cause Health project is completely trying to just go against the norm for the sake of it. There is a good reason why Ronnie and Stephen Mumford had had come to the ways in which they were thinking, which underpins the 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 ways in which we look at the theories and the assumptions that we have in practice. And that has an, an impact on on how we practice. So I think I think that that may have been a key element there is 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 just kind of allowing that space for reflection and maybe shedding light on some problems that we we didn't realize lay underneath. Mm. And I agree. I think the the series has been absolutely amazing. And what I found, even though I'd read the book before, that actually reading the book a chapter at the time and listening to its relevant podcasts worked really, really well for me. And it, it did make it much more accessible, but it did, it brought it much more to life um, and got the messages and the challenges um, much more to the forefront. But yeah, I, th- I think it's been great and I'm sure it's it made a lot of clinicians think that little bit harder which is which is a good thing because we could easily have just made we could easily have just made one episode about the book and we could have tried to explain what the book was about and and i and i really think that having these different voices and their different perspectives in the podcast was really helpful but also so valuable and interesting to listen to it was so I was just so excited each time I was listening to the the podcast episodes that other people did, because even though I talk a lot, I don't love to hear my own voice. But I just thought that when I listened to, for instance, Samantha's episode, I was just so excited. And then from then on, it was just it just went up. I was uh, I was just overwhelmed by the kind of insights that people were able to communicate in their yeah. in their episodes. Everyone was a favourite. Everyone came out, this is my favourite, and then next, oh, this is my favourite. And so they, you know, it sounds cheesy and nap, but everyone, everyone's a favourite, but everyone is, is, everyone was different and just offered that, offered something different and a different perspective, but, you know, equally as rich and as informative. So it was, it was so, so lovely. So another thing which is clear that the series has done is to create lots of discourse and chatter and tweeting off the back of each episode there would be a sub or meta conversation depending on which way you look at it. A, a following social media uh, discourse 
about how the episode landed or didn't land, perhaps, in some cases? I think the, I think the Twitter discussions, they actually started with the first episode, but then there was quite a lot of discussion on, about the complexity chapter. And then I know that after Roger's chapter or Roger's episode, there was also a lot of discussion about whether one actually needs to have the type of philosophical framework that we had presented in part one, because it seemed like what the practitioners who wrote uh, in part two were doing was just very good practice. And that if everyone just practiced it well, they were doing the right thing. So does it matter what kind of ontology you have at your basis? So it, it actually started quite a lot of discussions about, well, do you first of all need to buy into these positions? Do you need them? Could it be that if only we had perfect data, that the RCTs would be enough to give you all the subgroups and, uh, and almost even the N equals one? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and also there were some critical voices who didn't like that we were what they call watering out uh, the notion of evidence and making causal evidence something that didn't require RCTs. So I, I was I was a bit engaged in that discussion because it is a misunderstanding to think that the ontology doesn't matter first of all. Because all of the practitioners and I think also Chris's experience in, in part two is exactly that if you do it the way you're supposed to do, it's not the way that people did it, <laughs> the people who wrote in part two. Because what Coast Health has done is to gather clinicians who feel marginalized within the current framework. So it's not that you are free to do what you think is the right thing to do. You have to defend yourself and you have to explain why you, for instance, spend more time or why you don't just automatically apply the relevant guideline. So we wanted to explain why would you feel that kind of tension between the statistical information that you get from the evidence and what you think is the right thing to do with the person in front of you. And I really think to do that, you need to have the dispositional list ontological foundation, because otherwise you would just have to say it's because we don't have sufficient data on everyone. So, so that's why we wanted also to write these recommendations in the end, because we wanted to make clear how things need to change. So there has to be a change if we buy into what we say in the book. It's not like, okay, we can continue with the way it is exactly now. <laughs> but we have different or better explanations for why something is good. It's actually a change we want to see. I would call it a revolution. <laughs> I would want to see a revolution. I think a lot of people would want to see a revolution and radical change in the way healthcare is organized and practiced. And I think off the back of that, at the end there, Ronnie, I think people are asking, what are you revolting against? And if you're revolting against the original EBM description, you know, 1991 or whatever it was, then that no one does EBM like that anymore. That's a straw man and that's not how it's practiced. And people do end up accidentally practicing like Matt or Kai or Rafe. They just and and they ha they haven't I mean, obviously Matt has engaged with the philosophy but before that no doubt he was a, a similar clinician without engaging with the ontology and I suppose and I've said this to Matt before that that you can either hope that people just arrive at positions of practice like those clinicians I mentioned purely by accident or you can try and develop some sort of ontological framework about healthcare and causation, which can guide education. So it's a much more explicit journey to arrive at Matt or Kai or wherever it might be. So from an educational perspective, it does matter because there aren't the existing frameworks which lead you consistently to that position. You have to kind of do a, like a magpie, take a bit of everything. I take a bit of EBM, but it doesn't really fit that well with this particular theory, but I'll try and fudge it together. So there's inconsistency. And that's, I think, some of the feedback that came back was that 
I was kind of, none of this stuff seemed to make that much sense or it collided, but the Cause Health podcast series seems to be much more logically consistent in how it views evidence and narrative and person-centered care and interventions and even randomized controlled trials. So, so from my perspective, I, I see, I think some of the Twitter discussions were interesting in the ways in which it, I think it was viewed that in one way, shape or another, we were strawmanning uh, EBM. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure that that's exactly what the, it certainly wasn't the intention, I know that for sure. But essentially, it's looking at what the priorities were. And so even if we look at the traditional version of EBM, if you look at Gordon Guyatt's relatively recent uh, paper on what evidence-based medicine is, even in a few years ago, it's still, he still quote unquote says, no, you know, that, that evidence is not the same. There are different levels of evidence. He still prioritizes different forms of evidence. The, cl- the clinician still has to come to terms with the challenges of lots of different types of knowledge and different ways of knowing. And I think what the Cause Health Project does is it asks us to pause and come to some kind of sense-making process where you have some wisdom and it makes explicit the reasons why you make the decisions that you're making, okay? So are you making these decisions based purely on statistical average of data or population studies, or are you generating a mesh of co-constructed narratives with an element of what's seen as objective evidence from randomized control trials. And if you're doing that, how are you going about it? It's really diving into that nitty gritty. And I really think that the Cause Health Project kind of brings that to light. It doesn't answer the questions, but it makes it far more explicit than a Venn diagram, uh, which shows that, you know, the best of the evidence, the patient preferences and values and clinical expertise are all seen in this kind of, oh, yes, they all operate in equal measures with each other. Uh, yet when you have a discussion about, say, for example, the research evidence, well, clearly the other two seem to be de-emphasized. So what I think is, is, is really clear about the Course Health Project. It doesn't try to undermine or strawman evidence-based practice, but it asks questions about what evidence is and ways of knowing about evidence and ways in which you can try to articulate that or look at the pros and cons of evidence and apply it in the context of your practice. So as a clinician, that's going to be with an individual or or a group if you're doing, let's say, a group intervention. But equal, if you're a policymaker, you'll need to make different types of considerations within the context of the evidence that you gain and that there are limitations to population data, but you are dealing with populations. So it's really trying to, to, to rise the context up and that requires phrenesis, that requires a wisdom, a wisdom to make good decisions and how you come to those decisions and i think that's really really key and and can i just pick up something that that you said oliver in the sense that you know obviously i've had an awful lot of clinicians involved in my healthcare it must be about 20 30 maybe 40 now but actually i don't want to wait for them to pick up all these ideas themselves and develop themselves into the the type of clinicians that Roger and Matt and Kai and so on are, I want them to be taught a framework of some kind from from the beginning, if you like. And I think Cause Health provides, as, as Matt says, a way of thinking and putting things together to develop clinicians into the type of clinician that I want to be treated by. But much sooner in their their clinical development than than perhaps otherwise might be. And I also think I also think it's been the wrong focus to say that we are mainly criticizing EBM, evidence-based healthcare, because what we are saying is that evidence-based medicine and evidence-based healthcare, of course it can be watered out to include everything. And every time there's someone saying that, okay, well, what about qualitative research? What about the judgment? What about, you know, this and this? It's like, yeah, yeah, we can be informed by that as well. But at the basis, <laughs> it's it's the human 
conception of causality that we are challenging. And if you are accepting the, the human framework, then the strictest and most, I think, strawman-y version of EBM is exactly the right one. Because if you start from the assumption, same cause, same effect, in, in equal conditions, you have to assume that there is some kind of normal patient or average patient. You also have to think that the same intervention should be given to everyone who falls within the same group. And what it means to fall within the same group might just be that you have a certain diagnosis. It might not be more than that. And, and just having that type of framework, it would suggest that quantitative methods is the only way to have causal evidence. You cannot speculate about causal mechanisms. There is no way you can have a unique case of causality. It's just these things are in the philosophical framework, and that's why we wanted to discuss the philosophical framework and not person-centered or evidence-based uh, healthcare, because people can put whatever they want into those notions. And that's why we also discuss things like probability, causality, complexity, because everyone uses them. But we use them in different ways to mean entirely different things. And if we are not aware of that, we are just talking past each other, thinking that we all agree and that any kind of criticism is a straw man. But if you look at the concept, if you look at the concepts underneath, the human framework says that statistical frequencies is the only thing you can observe and therefore the only reliable source of evidence. And this is what when I I spoke with Roger, so taking so I guess doing the opposite of straw manning, steel manning, where you'd say that the the strict definition of EBM, as you described, has a, has a very clear human ontology around causation. Clinicians will say, "Yeah, but I'm not doing that. Like I'm, I'm I've I've bent I've kind of shifted away from that. I've bent the rules a bit. I've made a much more fluid conception of EBM. So what you're arguing against doesn't really exist in my mind in my reality. But I think the problem with that, the problem with that is that it's inconsistent. So you're you're kind of in no man's land, right? Where you're see, you're subscribing to an ontology of causation. You kind of changed it. You don't know how you shifted it to suit your needs. And it is a very, I mean, at least for me, it's a very inconsistent, difficult position to move from because you're contradicting yourself by saying, well, I, I'm, I'm accepting this model of EBM. It assumes, has a, has a vision or view of causation, which says that RCTs go at the top of the hierarchy, but I'm actually going to prioritize qualitative research. You can't hold those two positions. They're, they're inconsistent. And I suppose some people say, who cares? What does it matter? Like, so what? Just be pragmatic and just move on. And like, what difference does it make? Well, I suppose what is what difference does it make? Why is that a problem to hold those inconsistent positions? So people are operationalizing EBM to suit the needs of their person, the patient. They would say, well, it's working okay. Why do I need this? I don't think we can escape the fact that the whole healthcare system is organized in a dualist and fragmented way. So when we talk about complexity, we argue that you need to have a genuine complexity uh, concept in order to treat the whole person. So if you want to treat the whole, but you send their different parts to different specialists who never talk to each other, and everyone has different diagnoses for different body parts, then comorbidity is just a fragmentation. And this is what uh, people like Brian Broom and Anna-Louise Kirkengen have, they have spent their whole career arguing against this way of dividing up the person. So I don't think we could say that, well, you can do what you want within the framework that it is now because it needs a complete change and a complete reorganization in order to be genuinely holist and anti-dualist and, and non-reductionist. So yeah, I completely agree, Ronnie. And if I look from, from my own personal experience, I don't know how many times I've been treated as either a sciatica diagnosis or a shoulder diagnosis or a something else diagnosis. And it's been very rare that anyone has looked at me as a complete person. But of course, one of my you know, conditions is comorbid with the rest of me. They, they can't be looked at one separately from another. And even worse, we have to solve one before we solve the next and so on. Well, that doesn't work either. So the, there is a major problem in our healthcare system there. Mm. 
And I think it's a very, very reasonable speculation to say that philosophical underpinnings of biomedicine, evidence-based practice, in its kind of very strict perspective that we're just describing, manifests in ways in which we see diagnosis as discrete entities that are somewhat separated from the person, that subgroups exist in isolation of lived experience, and that leads on to certain care pathways which then fragment in the presence of other comorbidities. So, so yeah, yes, we can, you can say, well, I'm not sure that's the case. Well, as in the, the, the line of reasoning has gone from the philosophy to the practice. So you could speculate that that is or isn't the case. But what we do see in practice, what we experience is the fragmentation of care. And what I think dispositionalism does, or certainly the causal philosophy that underpins dispositionalism, what it does is is it starts to really question that fragmentation. It really starts to question diagnostic entities as discrete or separate from from the person. It starts to really question the existence of objective, subjective distortions and starts to see whole persons. So it asks very, very serious questions that need to be come to terms with. So I think even at, even at that level, the value, which I think has come through all of these podcasts, really has borne its fruit. And, and what we wanted to explain is that it's not something you can change easily in practice. It's not like you can easily say, oh, now we're going to study genuine complexity. Now we're going to treat people in an anti-dualist way. Because... The whole concept of causation says that you should have a difference-making concept. It should make a difference. But how on earth do you know whether a treatment or something made a difference if you don't study it in isolation? And that's how fragmentation becomes part of the whole way that scientific basis is, uh, uh, you know, the whole way that evidence is produced, it is by separating one by one. And that's also how you get these very unrepresentative clinical studies because how many people have this one condition and nothing else and one treatment and nothing else but the whole point is that the interactions between all of these things the real complexity is where you is what you find in the clinic but then the clinical complexity that just comes down to it's seen as anecdotes and not evidence but it is really weird because this is where you actually have, what do you say, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. This is where you eat the eat the pudding. <laughs> and it should really inform back to research. So clinical clinically produced evidence is so valuable for causal insights. Before we move on to recommendations, I suppose, assuming the revolt doesn't take place and people aren't marching on the streets with placards, holding cause health science, assuming that doesn't take place, right? I suppose for me, even if people don't necessarily grapple with the ontology and they can't spell dispositionism or say it, there's something about listening to those episodes of, of everyone where which is emphasized a side of practice which hasn't really given the same oxygen as, as other sides of healthcare practice, which is around biomedical concepts and interventions and techniques. So just listening, listening to those stories as a clinician gives you a perspective on your practice, which even if you're not thinking about causation or dispositionism or some other theoretical framework, that level of understanding or that depth of understanding and that context sensitivity of practice, which is often not talked about. So I think you know, there's a, it's a win-win situation. Fine, if people don't go out and buy the T-shirt, fine. But just the the emphasis on stories and narratives and people, I think that's the, that's also, you know, that's a, a second a second best or a second win or a win-win. I don't know. It has value just, just emphasizing those, those lived experiences. I just think it's important to emphasize how radical some of these clinicians in part two really are. I mean, it's not like it's just being open doors in an easy way. Some of these people have really had to, uh, they feel that they are rebelling the system because it's not what they're supposed to do. And uh, why are they not supposed to do the way, uh, what they are doing now? It's because of the way that we think 
For instance, if we think that everyone should get the same. If we think that the aim of evidence is to standardize care, then why should you even care about who you have in front of you if they already have a diagnosis? Uh, so that's why we want to say that, well, if, if you think that you need to adapt something to your, <laughs> to your patient, you need an ontology to back it up and you need an epistemology to go with it. That's what we're providing. And the idea of standardization of care is not in itself inherently bad in the fact that what you can say with regards to standardization is you're, you're, what, what you're trying to do is, is go, in the, in, go, in the, go in the right direction. It becomes more heuristic and not absolute. I think that's, that's something from a healthcare perspective. If we look at standardization as too distinct and too absolute, then it has massive consequences and we outline why. So the idea of reducing unwanted variation is trying to shape a healthcare system towards something that we think re reflects reality, the reality that we construct through the ontology. Because people would say, well, if it's not standardized, then it's anything goes. Well, hold on a second. No, it's, it's not. It's, a, it's, it's shaping a healthcare system towards something that we think it actually uh, represents a reality. It's a clear ethical problem here that we think that if everyone gets the best available care, then everything is fine. But we know that the best available care is not the best for each and every person. And, and for me, there's almost two stages. So, so one is challenging and restructuring whatever that means, the, the healthcare system for the future to, to take into account some of these ideas. But but as you say, Oli, you know, that, that may or may not, not happen in the long term. But even in the short term, if there are some clinicians who listen to these podcasts and read the book and it challenges their thinking and it changes their practice, that change of practice will have an impact on many patients. And actually, that's really important. That can make a huge difference to, to somebody's life. So short-term, long-term, both important for me. So as I mentioned in the concluding chapter, Rani, Samantha and Eleanor, you guys have laid out a series of recommendations, kind of calls to actions as part of your rebellion, Rani. <laughs> this is the shopping list. <laughs> but these are your the recommendations which are, which are based on bringing all the, the, the chapters and the theory together. So the first recommendation is that we should assume medical uniqueness because there is no normal, standard or statistically average patient. And Christine, I think you wanted to say something about this one. So, I mean, th this is one that I feel particularly strongly about because for the first four years of my care following my, my injury, I was definitely treated as a routine patient. And I'm, you know, reflecting back, I feel as though... I was probably more a diagnosis than than anything else. And I wasn't looked at as the unique person that, that I am with my complexities, my comorbidities, my place in society and everything else. And that routine standard guideline followed care just didn't work for me. So... If that hadn't happened, if I'd had something more tailored, if you like, to, to what was happening for me, then there's no doubt in my mind that I could have been spared quite a lot of pain in those first few years. And, you know, I, I could have gone along my journey a lot, a lot more quickly. So, yeah, that's that's one that I feel particularly strongly about, that who is this normal person? Who is this standard person? There haven't been any RCTs that have been done on me. I just wouldn't fit. I would be rejected probably from all RCTs because of my comorbidities and the fact that I've had back surgery and so on. I needed to be treated as a unique person like everybody else does. And I think one way, I'm also thinking from the clinical perspective, clinicians listening in, 
how might clinicians conceive of this? I think this resonates with clinicians anyway. But I was, as you were speaking there, Chris, I was thinking of ways in which we communicate. By that, I mean healthcare professionals communicate with each other. There's a tendency to describe a case or a patient in the respect of their diagnosis. And when we talk about cases or patients, particularly in multidisciplinary team meetings, and I'm thinking of uh, this could be handovers, this could be ward rounds, or this could be in multidisciplinary team meetings, for, for example, um, spinal MDTs, is something that I've thought about is encouraging clinicians to talk about not just the patient name, the number, diagnosis, is to start with the social history. So this is Christine Price. She is a blah, 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 yeah, a person who does and start with the social history, start with the social history and the impacts and the impairments and then the diagnosis and then the medications and then the uh, physical examination findings. Yeah, so it's just, it's emphasising, it's not trying to deconstruct what we do because inherently that's fine, but it's what it's doing is trying to emphasise the person at the front of the story at the front of the handover, at the front of the presentation or discussion of the situation. Something even like that, because I'm thinking pragmatically, that even things like that make a difference. People start, because then the team starts to see the person as opposed to the back pain sciatica, right L5S1 disc protrusion. And I completely agree. I that, that sounds so much more sensible to me very powerful. And from the philosophical perspective, if you start from a human conception, you would start with the assumption that you have a normal or average. So you would think what you see under the same conditions. And then if that doesn't work, you will start to try to single out something that is a better and better subgroup. So, so you can see that it changes the focus from starting with, okay, first, we do what we always do. And then if that doesn't work, we do the second best thing, the second, you know, the after that. And then if nothing works, it's like, oh my God, okay, so this is a, this is a unique uh, <laughs> individual. But if you instead start from the assumption that no, every kind of causal um, process is, is a unique because it has a unique set of dispositions involved, then that would, you would, instead of thinking that it's time saving to give everyone the same, uh, which the guideline is saying, it would be time saving to try to figure out very quickly what would be the best for this individual. And, and surely it must be much more interesting for the clinician to be looking at people as individuals rather than just trying to do what, what they've always done before. I mean, I'm not a clinician, so I, I can't speak on behalf of clinicians, but but I would certainly want to know more about the individual person rather than just doing what I've always done. But you see, uniqueness, uniqueness is a problem in the human uh, perspective because there couldn't be a unique case of causation. So we are all just in our own subgroup where we lack uh, the identical twin that we could have been compared with. So <laughs> ideally, we would all have twins and then we could check what works with them. And if that works for them, it should work for us. But since we don't have the twins, it's a problem. And there might be a political economic explanation as well. So if, people, if, you, if we can reduce people down to diagnostic categories, then it means that you can compartmentalise that to a time frame, which is then subject to money. And then you can, you know, it fits a kind of neoliberal politics, which uh, a patient becomes a consumer, you know, the, the process becomes consumerist. But, you know, it's very, it's, it's very much, it very much follows the line of thought. Yeah, but, but actually I would suggest that, that quite often that's probably misplaced in the sense that if you get the treatment right from the beginning, then actually that that's going to be cheaper, more economical in the, the long term rather than applying routine treatments that don't work and you just carry on and carry on and carry on. Course Health started from, we started with the societal challenge and problem 
and it is the fact that 30 to 50 percent of all complaints taking to the doctor are so-called medically unexplained and these are people who don't get help in the system because there is no causal evidence to back up what's going on with them and nothing is working for them and we did include some estimates of costs uh, in the healthcare system that these people represent and it's massive and it's also huge cost for them personally because they're not getting help but they're in the system and, I, and that's why i was so happy that Anna luisa concluded part two because the the type of patients that she sees they have been in the system for maybe decades and they have cost a lot of money and they are full of treatments <laughs> they have had a whole long history of treatments but with no effect or with harmful effects so if we are really thinking of saving time and money, which we are, then shouldn't we just try to get it right in the first place? So then if it takes two hours to talk with someone, then surely that is nothing compared to what it will cost to get it wrong. So the next recommendation is related. And this one is that treatment should be adapted rather than standardised because no two patients are causally equal. Christine, would you like to speak to that one? So yes, again, this is something from my experience that, that I feel quite passionately about. Patients are different. They're totally different. Treatment should be adapted. I appreciate that there are guidelines and there's a range of treatment that may be recommended for for various types of patient whatever types of patient means but whatever you do needs to be adapted tailored to the patient in front of you and not only tailored to the patient in front of you but but also formulated with that patient because if that patient doesn't buy into it then it isn't going to work so the, there's also something about a therapeutic alliance, there's something about treatment being co-constructed with, with the patients. And yeah, of course, if you do that properly, then the, the treatments will inevitably be slightly different from one person to another. And that's right, isn't it? I've suffered from being given treatments by, say, one clinician that hasn't worked, so they've discharged me and then gone to another clinician and that clinician's done the same treatment on me because that's a standardized treatment and guess what that hasn't worked so i've gone to another clinician and so it's been repeated but what i needed was my treatment to be adapted to me and not just to me in the clinic but also to me in the life that i lead I think that's really powerful, Chris. And and I, I'd say that, again, I think what we're looking for is, or what I envisage toward is a consistency in understanding uniqueness, understanding everybody's history is, is their own. It's not somebody else's or it can't be taken over. And this idea of standardization should be broadened towards heuristic by that, I mean it's not absolute, it's not distinct. We don't want this to become an anything-goes-nonsense. But what we do want to do is put at the very top of that, if you're going to standardise anything, if you're going to have any consistency in standardisation, it's that premise, the premise that the individuals are unique and you uh, have to vary your approach depending on the individual case or person or situation. And the third recommendation is that we should value qualitative approaches because causal evidence is much more than evidence from RCTs. And this came up a lot, actually, and this was, for me, uh, someone that does qualitative research. It was radical in so much as, as I said in some of the episodes, that traditionally qual research has been a way to get insight and context of the findings of randomized controlled trials or to use as, as contextual insights to to deliver the interventions that the RCTs permit us to deliver. Whereas course health suggests otherwise, that actually there's causal evidence that actually listening to patients or participants' stories and accounts and narratives is causal evidence. It tells us something about causation, which isn't traditionally talked about at all in 
the quoll literature. The, you know, the quoll researchers are very standoffish when it comes to causation and don't really want any part of it. But it's completely flipped. So for me, this was a, a, a real a real departure from traditional qualitative work. Well, once you once you swap this uh, Humean uh, framework into a dispositionalist one and you say that causal processes happen because there are dispositional properties involved that interact in certain ways, then, I mean, these dispositions, they are properties. They are qualities. And how can you learn about something qualitatively by counting? You, you have to understand what is actually going on. And this also brings us over to the next recommendation, which is that you should consider mechanistic and theoretical knowledge because you need to understand how and why something happens. And, and this is one recommendation that COSEL shares with other research projects, like uh, this EBM Plus, for instance, that was uh, ongoing at the same time where the, you have philosophers uh, working on causation in medicine. And what we're saying is that it's not that you need to necessarily change entirely what counts as evidence, but you need to include more. So you need to also understand what's going on. If we don't understand, if all we do is to count how often something follows by something from something else, then we are in no way equipped to say, okay, so this is what we should do, or this is how we should change. Because you cannot just change something if you don't know if it's actually doing some causal work. So what we're saying is that if you if you only look at correlation data and comparisons of correlation data, it's not sufficient as causal evidence. That's just like counting how often pens falls, but it's uh, how how often pens fall. But it's not going to give you any understanding of gravitational attraction, for instance. So what we're saying is that if you really want to know what is useful or efficient for someone you need to understand what it's doing and what they are bringing to the table that will interact with the treatment. So yeah, this is why you need qualitative evidence. And I really think that people doing qualitative research should feel freer to say that they're actually talking about the causal process leading up to the stage that we have now. Because when we talk about causal stories, you get a lot of information about what influenced the situation, what counteracted the benefits of treatment. And when you say influencing and counteracting or interacting, these are all causal, it's all causal verbs. And it's the subjectivity which gets the fact that you just telling me about your life or your situation, that's not, that's not valid. That, you, that, that your subjective report, for example, of your symptoms and how you develop those symptoms which is essentially what clinicians do and qualitative researchers do, they're interested in that subjectivity. That's not good enough. <laughs> we need to see that in a trial. Which is really weird. Yeah, and in a trial, we're happy to listen to what happened to, <laughs> it, what happened to people and how they feel. Mm. <laughs> so why? I guess it's how it's treated. So that, that, that subjective data... On, on some kind of measurement tool questionnaire is then still stuck into SPSS and whacked out a p-value, whereas the qual researcher treats that subjective data subjectively. So it's more than happy to to, to co-construct it, to mess with it, and build something from it. So so the the quant research would say, well, hang on a minute, like fine, I'm I'm, I'm happy to try and retrieve subjective information. But there's no way I'm handling that. I'm going to let SPSS deal with that or stick it into some you know, program, system program, so I'm not meddling. My values aren't infiltrating the data. But then you lose. I was, I was shocked the first time I heard about objective versus subjective risk because it sounds like if something is a subjective risk, it's like what you feel is the case. But objective risk was like, okay, this is what you can count. It's what you are getting statistically. So the risk is uh, how often something happens. And subjective risk is when people start dying. I, I'm just thinking, if you, <laughs> if something happens to you that is really serious, it, is it subjective? <laughs> because you tell what happened. I would say if you tell someone about like the things that Anna-Louise was talking about, that you've been abused or what Kai 
was talking about that you experienced trauma in the childhood. Well, of course it's subjective because it happened to you, but it's objective evidence. It's it's evidence that has a scientific. You can you can ground it in scientific knowledge, and it can inform scientific knowledge. I seem to remember Alex Broadbent talking about testimonial evidence and saying that, um, well, you know, research evidence is still testimonial in the fact that the researchers are creating the data and it's still testimony, which I thought was a really interesting perspective on it. Um, so, and, but the, the, there's the other, the, the other thing I was going to say was about the randomised control trials in the, in the way in which you know, it's not to suggest that randomized control trials aren't useful. They they are very, extremely useful, but let's see them for what they are, as as methods by which we can establish differences between two very controlled situations and circumstances, and that has value. And the the other thing I would I would say is is that to go back to about randomized control trials is that when it comes to cause causation, as Roger said in his podcast. Randomized control trials are symptomatic of causation. They point towards causation, but they don't demonstrate causation. I think that's that's another really important thing to to take away. And and can I just agree in the sense that I think randomized control trials are really important in my own care. I want all evidence to be taken into account, all guidelines to be taken into account, but I do want my personal evidence to be centre stage as well and for good decisions to be made on the range of evidence, not not just randomised control trials. Because as I say, randomised control trials don't represent me. They do to a small extent, but, but they cannot possibly represent me as a person. What you're saying there, Christine, is quite important because the the RCTs they don't they don't show if something made a difference to anyone participating in the study. It only shows that it's a statistically significant difference between the two groups. So usually, when we say that cost should make a difference, we mean within that individual, and this is why we want to. So one of the recommendations is that you need to consider individual propensities. And the individual propensities is the individual properties or the individual dispositions of that person that gives you a certain risk or probability for getting a certain outcome. And this is part of understanding uh, the mechanisms, because if all you know is how often something happens and the statistically significant difference between two groups, then the only type of information you get from that kind of evidence is the numbers needed to treat. So you need to treat 10 in order to, uh, you, you need to give it to 10 people to, for seven people to benefit, for instance, or you need to give something to 100 people in order for one to get harmed. <laughs> so numbers needed to treat, numbers needed to harm. That's the kind of evidence that you're left with. And that in itself doesn't tell us anything about what's your propensity, what's your chance of getting harmed or treated with this treatment? And this is the type of evidence that we should have. It's the type of, yeah, it's difficult to get, but it has to be the aim. I agree. But it also doesn't tell you how do you treat those three out of 10 that, that it doesn't work on. It doesn't tell you anything about that at all. But but, you know, I might be one of those three out of ten, so how are you going to treat me? You can't just re rely on RCTs. There needs to be much more than that. Mm -hmm. And then the, the the response might be, well, hold on, you know, we're looking at patient values and preferences and clinical expertise. But that's not very, very clear either. That becomes all uh, rather... And 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 then the, the patient aspect gets reduced to for some reason it gets reduced to expectations so it's then it, then it becomes the argument becomes well it's it, well it can't have anything that the patient wants well that's how did we get there how, how did we even get to that point in some of these discussions so it, it i think what we are explicating through the whole cause health project is recognizing that all of these tensions exist and that by understanding or having these nice conclusions that have been placed into the, the final chapter here, ways in which I think we can move forwards, uh, because these things haven't been resolved. And, and I really do think that this, the, this final book chapter heads us towards a better direction.
And the, the, the kind of work that we do in cause health now is looking also at the side effects of uh, medical treatments. And there are two ways to approach those. Uh, one is to count how often people get adverse drug events. And then you see if it's enough that it deserves uh, a space on the label as a, <laughs> as a, a warning. The other is to hope that you will have enough eventually of the side effects that you can do an RCT, <laughs> you know, but usually this is not, I mean, you cannot do an, you cannot ethically do an RCT, uh, hoping people will uh, show side effects. So uh, what we are, what we are doing there is to say, you need to understand three types of dispositions. You need to understand the dispositions of the, of the intervention. So the treatment that you're giving. But you also need to understand the dispositions of the person getting it. And if they are in a vulnerable position, instead of saying that, oh, they were already vulnerable, so I'm sure they would have had this side effect, no matter if they had the <laughs> drug or not, because they were already vulnerable to that kind of effect. You would say that, well, if people are vulnerable, <laughs> then it's very likely that if this drug works in this way, it could trigger it much easier than it would with another person. And then the third type of dispositions you want, you need to understand, well, dispositional knowledge you need to have is how would they to interact? How would this intervention and that uh, person interact? And, and usually we are just looking at, well, we're usually just looking at whether this drug could have, if it's enough evidence to say that it could have been an intrinsic disposition. So this this recommendation about looking at individual propensities. So how do you, how do you do that? One thing that we suggest is that you should study unexpected outcomes because you can learn so much from outliers and marginal cases. Because of course you can count how often something happens, and if the same thing happens many many times, you don't necessarily learn something new. But once you get an unexpected outcome it shows that there's a difference here that is costly relevant. And then you need to find out what is this difference. So what we would want to see there is to have qualitatively rich information about those outlier, outlier cases, because it can inform our theoretical understanding. And I think this is the type of, of uh, information that one could get from, from Chris, instead of just saying, oh, she's a non-responder. You could go in and say, okay, so what's special about her? Yep. I was going to say for clinicians, that would be very much understanding a person's story, their history, and the, the types of interventions that they certainly have had adverse responses to, uh, and those that they've had successes with. And it's rather than thinking about, okay, well, this person didn't respond to X, Y, or Z, I, I'm not confident that necessarily that's been explored. So what happens is, is that as Chris described earlier, there's the tendency for repeated treatments to happen again and again and again, even though it's clearly not been helpful for that person. And so it's not just enough to stop there. Oh, this isn't working for that person. Let's try and understand why. And I think digging further into that person's narrative, that person's story and the context under which the treatment interventions are taking place could provide some further information or evidence that might sh somewhat shape the way that you might uh, intervene when or co-construct your next intervention or treatment. Before we end, I really want to thank you, Oliver, for the work that you've done with this podcast. Everyone who has been into you, they've been so happy with the way that you have guided them through. And I think you have really brought so much more attention to the book that we could have done on our own and really sparked an interest and really contributed to a lot of engagement with these ideas and a lot of discussions that I don't think the book could have sparked on its own without this podcast series. So I really want to thank you on behalf of the editorial team and the authors that you have done this work. Uh, we couldn't have chosen a better platform. And I, and I think also some of the feedback you got on Twitter that, you know, the words matter title of the podcast, that it is a very good fit with, uh, with the cause health themes and agenda. So I really feel that this is like a match made in heaven 
what we have uh, had here. So thank you for this. Yeah, and I would, I would like to add to that, if that's okay, Ollie, because I feel that the way in which you've done the podcasts uh, demonstrates the type of sensitivity that is reflected by the Cause Health team uh, in a way in which it uh, addresses very difficult, complex issues which need to be taken seriously. And I think you've you've reflected that really well in your in the way that you've uh, asked the questions. You've clearly have done a lot of work prior to each of the episodes and you've taken the utmost care and precision in doing that. So thank you for all the excellent work you've done on it. I think it's really paid off well. So yeah. Oh, it's a pleasure. Pleasure. I should cut all that out. I can't leave that in. 10 minutes of compliments. No way. <laughs> Rani, Matt and Christine, thank you so much for Again, your time and talking us through the final chapter and reflecting on the previous episodes and the book. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you, Ollie. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.